Before we get started, I wanted to say that May 5th marked the one-year anniversary of Crime Lines. I want to thank everyone who has listened to the show, interacted on social media, joined my live streams, donated on Patreon or Himalaya, bought something from a sponsor, left a review, or any of those other amazing ways you've supported the success of Crime Lines. Without you, I would literally be just sitting in my basement right now talking to myself. I want to thank you all for an amazing year. So on to the first episode of Crime Lines, year number two. For over 30 years, a brutal double murder in rural Iowa went unsolved until the television show Cold Justice intervened. After the show's investigators identified a suspect, the state took that person to trial. But was this prosecution a case of overwhelming evidence or a case of giving Cold Justice a satisfying ending? I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome to Crime Lines, or welcome back if you have listened before. I have a feeling this week's case was a suggestion from a listener, but I don't have a name next to it on my spreadsheet like I usually do. So if you did suggest this one to me, reach out and let me know so I can give you a shout out next week. A secret about me is that I am not very organized, not naturally. What I have done is come up with a lot of methods that compensate, but since I'm not really oriented in the direction of using those methods, sometimes it just doesn't work out information doesn't get put where I need it to be. So I do apologize if I ever cover a case that you suggested and I don't mention it. It's absolutely valid to email me and let me know so that I can give you your shout out the following week because I do appreciate knowing what kinds of cases you all want to hear and I do want to thank you with a shout out. So let's get into this week's episode, which you may have recommended. I don't know. Just let me know. It was covered in Cold Justice, like I said in the opening, and that is incredibly important to the broader story here. So you're going to hear me pop in and note parts that were covered in the TV show. If you don't know about Cold Justice, it's a true crime show where investigators show up, generally to a small town, at the invitation of the police. They sit down and they go over a cold case. They re-interview witnesses. They look at the evidence. Sometimes they test evidence. In the episode that covered tonight's case, the investigators were prosecutor Kelly Sigler, crime scene investigator Yolanda McClary, who are like the two main hosts of the show, and then homicide detective Johnny Bonds, who is a show or was a show regular. I honestly don't know which seasons he was on. This is Crime Lines. We follow a timeline here. So let's start where we always start, at the beginning. Stephen Fisher and Teresa Sapino had an impulsive wedding when they were pretty young in August 1981 
in their hometown of Newton, Iowa, which is east of Des Moines. Steve was 19 and Terry was 21. Terry was also pregnant with their son who would be born, I think, roughly a month later. Though not biologically Steve's baby, they did plan to raise him together. About a year after their son's birth, their second child was born, and this time it was a daughter. But the marriage was not headed for success, and that was obvious right away. From what family, friends, and everyone else has said, Stephen wasn't really ready to settle down at such a young age. Some have said he was wild and ornery, but others spun it more like he was full of life. The couple fought a lot, and they also didn't live together consistently over the period of their short marriage. They'd move back in with their families periodically, with Terry always keeping the babies with her. In late 1982, the couple was going through one of these periods of living apart, with Terry and the kids living with her brother Carlo and his family, while Steve lived between his parents' house and a 20-foot camper trailer at the Copper Dollar Ranch, which is where he worked. Copper Dollar Ranch is just a few miles outside of Newton. Though separated, Terry and Steve were still dating, seeing each other. I don't know. They were still having sex. And they were still fighting. In an incident witnessed by the wife of the ranch's owner in late 1982, Terry was in her car in the driveway to the ranch trying to talk to Stephen, who was raking leaves. Steve went to the car window, and they started arguing, and Terry rolled up the window. Steve's arm or sleeve got caught in the window as Terry drove off. Even with Stephen running alongside the car, trying to get her to stop or to get his arm free, Terry drove a ways before she did finally stop. Stephen's arm was broken in this incident. Obviously, this was not an amicable split any more than it was an amicable marriage. Even so, Terry was making moves towards reconciliation. She wanted to get her family together, and she wanted to find an apartment with Steve, with the kids, where they could settle down. But Steve was not interested. He didn't file for divorce or stop seeing Terry or stop being intimate with her. He did keep a bit of this relationship with Terry going while he was also dating another young woman, 17-year-old Melissa Gregory. Stephen met Melissa at the ranch where she worked as a horse groomer. Melissa and Steve were similar in that they had charm and they had that same high energy, that attracted them to each other, and Melissa fell in love. But a lot of her friends were not fans of Steve. With one of them years later saying that Steve was a D-bag, I think that's just a statement on the type of boyfriend he made, not necessarily on the entirety of his character. After all, Melissa was really funny, she was a warm person, and she saw a lot in Steve. 
He was a bit of a clown. He did get himself into trouble here and there, but it wasn't anything that was a deal breaker for Melissa. And some of us have had friends who have a partner who we don't think is good for them. Maybe we're the one with the not-so-great boyfriend. It's been known to happen. Terry found out that Steve was having this relationship with Melissa at the same time she thought they were reconciling. One night, all three ended up at the same bar, and Melissa and Terry started fighting. But witnesses said that rather than breaking them up, Steve actually prevented anyone else from intervening. They were under the impression that Steve was encouraging this. Melissa did overpower Terry, who weighed only 90 pounds at the time, and came out on the winning side of the fight. Sometime in very late 1982, possibly early 1983, Terry showed up at Melissa's house where she lived with her family. It was three or four in the morning, and she was banging on the door, presumably looking for Steve. Melissa's mom opened the door, and Terry started yelling at her, and she eventually called Melissa's mother a curse word. Well, Melissa heard that and came flying out the door, and the two women got into a fight right in front of the family's house. This type of drama went on for months, with Steve seeing both his wife Terry and his girlfriend Melissa. Terry was holding on to this idea that this relationship, that this intact family could be salvaged. But even though Stephen never filed for divorce, it does seem like getting back together was a fantasy. On March 2nd, 1983, Terry called Linda Snedeker, and she is the wife of the ranch's owner. His name is Hal Snedeker. Terry said she needed to find Stephen, and her voice was urgent. Linda said she wasn't sure where he was, but she did say he might be at the camper. And that evening, Stephen was at the camper with Melissa. Melissa initially did not plan to spend the night with Stephen that night. She had wanted to take the family car, so she had a ride home later on. But her mom needed the car, so I think Melissa's plan was that if Steve couldn't bring her home, she would just spend the night and go home in the morning. So her family didn't think anything of it that night when Melissa didn't come home. Then at around 8 a.m. the next morning, March 3rd, one of the farmhands, Jeff Illingsworth, was walking by the camper when he saw a blood-covered body on the ground. Though face down, Jeff assumed it was Steve. Just inside the door of the camper, he could also see the body of a woman who he assumed was Melissa. Both were so completely covered in blood that he assumed they had been shot in the head. Jeff ran over to the nearest neighbor, who was actually pretty close to the camper, and she rushed out to see what he was talking about. And when she saw Steve on the ground, she ran back to her house and called the sheriff's department. 
This was a few years before Iowa had statewide 911 emergency calling. When the police arrived, they realized they were not going to be able to identify either victim visually. They hadn't been shot. They were beaten so severely in the head and face that neither were immediately recognizable. Dental records and fingerprints were used to make the formal identification of Steve and Melissa. Let's talk about the scene for a minute. Steve was wearing just jeans and was about 50 feet away from the trailer door close to his vehicle. Melissa was inside the camper just to the right of the door where the table and bench seats were. She was completely naked. But there was also blood spatter on the other side of the trailer where the bed was, and then a trail of blood all the way across this 20-foot trailer. Melissa's bloody handprint was found on the stove. And then there was more spatter where she was found, and there was also a strike mark in the cabinet above the bench where the killer must have swung too high. The investigators from the Cold Justice TV show pointed out how little clearance there was from the bench where Melissa was found to the cabinet above, and they concluded that for a person to be able to get enough momentum to have inflicted those wounds without having also hit the cabinet a bunch of times, this person could not have been very tall. What police concluded happened was that Steve and Melissa were in bed when there was a knock at the trailer door or a noise outside. Steve got up, pulled on some pants, and opened the door. He walked several steps outside, possibly to talk to whomever had shown up. While outside the camper and far enough away that Melissa didn't hear anything, this person beat Stephen to death. The nearby neighbor had also had her windows open in those overnight hours, and she also didn't hear anything, which makes it seem like there was not much of a argument or a fight that led up to this. Or if there was, it was a very quiet one. After attacking Stephen, the killer then went into the trailer and attacked Melissa while she was in the bed. The trailer would have been very cramped for two people to have jostled or wrestled around much to get across the trailer. So while it's possible Melissa got up and tried to make it across the trailer in an attempt to get away, the investigators with Cold Justice didn't think that was likely. Again, too narrow of a space. They think the killer dragged the stunned Melissa out of the bed after that initial attack and forced her to the bench where she would be able to see Steve's body from inside the trailer. After she saw his body on the ground, the attacker then killed her. The autopsy showed that both of them died of blunt force trauma to the head by a heavy-edged 
instrument. The ME referred to them in the reports as chop wounds. There was no weapon found at the scene and no reports of a missing hammer or a missing hatchet or anything like that, so we don't know any more about the murder weapon than this. The police were able to track Melissa and Steve's movements until about 10.30 at night, so they knew they were killed after that. But as you can imagine, most people have terrible alibis from 10.30 at night until 8 in the morning during the work week. Most of us are home and we're either sleeping or we're with people who are sleeping and cannot vouch for us. The police followed dozens of leads, and the FBI came in to create a profile, which basically told them that this was someone who was very angry, this was a rage killing, this may have even been spontaneous. Persons of interest came and went in the case, but it did eventually grow cold. The families expressed frustration in the local paper about six months after the murders that this hadn't been solved, and Terry Sapino said that she thought the police knew more than they were saying, but they were keeping it all hush-hush, which I'm sure they were, especially from Terry, since she was one of the prime suspects. I really doubt the police were keeping her in the loop. Now, every so often over the years, someone would open the file and look over everything. They'd question a few people again, and as they could, they would run some forensic testing. Some of those tests were DNA tests on evidence from the scene. Eventually, though, only four DNA profiles were found on any of the evidence. Melissa's and Steve's, of course, the owner of the ranch, Hal Snedeker, and his brother-in-law. Hal owned the ranch, and he owned that camper. He and his brother-in-law had plenty of valid reasons for being in and around the camper, so this isn't any really bombshell type of evidence. The blood they had samples of was almost all Melissa's, but some samples had Steve's blood mixed in. This backs up the idea that the killer attacked Steve outside the trailer first, and whatever was in the trailer, which was much smaller amounts, that would have been tracked in by the attacker. So when cold justice investigators came in in about 2014, they may have actually come in in 2013. It's hard to tell with production times when they actually looked at this, but it was 2013, 2014. They came in, they looked at the case file, they re-interviewed people, and they identified three lead suspects. We have Hal Snedeker, the owner of the ranch, then there's Terry Sapino, the estranged wife, and also we have Terry's twin brother, Tim. So let's first talk about Hal, since we've not even really touched on his role in this. Not all of what I'm going to say was in the Cold Justice episode, but in the sake of fairly representing this story, I dug up whatever I could. 
Hal bought the Copper Dollar Ranch in 1981, always having loved horses. This was a dream of his. He moved from Florida to Iowa to run the ranch full-time, but horses are expensive, and it's hard to keep a ranch like this afloat. There isn't a lot of money coming in. Hal knew he needed a side hustle to support the ranch, so he used contacts he had in Florida to start smuggling a few loads of drugs to Iowa in the early 1980s. Stephen Fisher did not only know about this, he participated in it. One time, Hal flew Steve to Florida with over $30,000 in cash to do a buy for him. Rumors around town were that the smuggling operation was smuggling cocaine in the stomachs of horses and rolled up in hay deliveries. But everything I've seen from Hal, he's only admitting to marijuana smuggling. The reason this would put Hal in the suspect category is because Steve turned police informant against someone else at least once to get out of his own trouble with the police. According to several people, Steve actually had a reputation for being a bit of a snitch even before his death, so it wasn't a huge secret either. Steve knew more than enough to blow the lid off of Hal's operations. By Hal's own admission, when he got to the trailer the morning the bodies were discovered, someone turned to him and said, so you found out. And Hal asked, found out what? And the person said, you found out Steve was an informant and you killed him. So this is day one, minute one. People were suspecting Hal. They were suspecting this being related to drugs. Hal then made it worse for himself by lying about his initial alibi. He was telling the police he was in Des Moines that night, which is at least 30 minutes away from the scene. But he actually wasn't. He was in Jasper County in the Newton area. Hal has denied many times over that he had anything to do with Steve's death. He also denied knowing anything about it because another theory has been that the murders were a message to Hal after some sort of deal went south, kind of like a threat. But Hal says this would have been a terrible message because he never got it. He doesn't know what this is about and believes that he would have heard something from his drug connections if Stephen's death was at all related. Under the scenario, Melissa's murder was with the purpose of silencing the witness, and it was just a case of wrong place, wrong time. And truly, if Hal had anything to do with this, he's cold as ice because he served as a pallbearer at Steve's funeral. In cold justice, they leaned away from Hal because this did not look like a drug hit. Johnny Bonds, the homicide detective, had a lot of experience with drug-related crimes and murders. He said a drug hit would simply put be cleaner. Someone would have come in and just shot them both. This 
brutal beating seemed more like an unplanned crime of passion. And that leads us to the other two suspects, Terry Sapino and her twin brother, Tim. I've spent about half this episode laying out the motive for Terry, let's be honest. She wanted to reconcile, and her husband was seeing somebody else. Now, the reason her brother Tim would be wrapped up in this is because he and Terry told the police that they were at the ranch that night, March 2nd, and they were putting themselves at the scene of the crime. Of course, they're saying that when they left, Stephen was alive and well. So here's what happened. And I'm going to give you the full story that I have found, not just the cold justice version, though there was nothing inaccurate about what was in cold justice. There were just more details that weren't covered, and some of those details, in my view, are pretty important. That's probably why my podcast varies in length from 35 minutes to an hour and a half. For me, a story takes however long it takes to tell. Maybe I just need an editor to make my show a consistent length, like a program like Cold Justice, or we can just keep doing things our way here on Crime Lines. So, okay, let's get back on track. On the night of March 2nd, Tim, his girlfriend Rhonda, and Terry were hanging out, and Terry wanted to go out to the ranch to talk to Stephen. Now, why she wanted to go out to the ranch has changed over the years. At the time, Terry said she was going out there to discuss going apartment hunting with Steve since they had made plans to get back together. Another time, she said she was going out to see Steve about money he owed her or money to get shoes for their son. And I think the story that's probably the most honest one, even if she had a different excuse for going out there, I think the real reason is when she said she showed up unannounced to annoy him. And possibly if Melissa was there to annoy her too. She was mad at him and this would disrupt their night. Tim agreed to drive Terry out there and they took Rhonda's car. It was a 13 to 14 minute drive out to the ranch and then that means 13 to 14 minute drive back. I'm sure you guys understand round trips. Rhonda said they left a little after 11 p.m. Tim said that when they got to the ranch, he went up to the trailer and knocked on the door. When Steve came to the door, he must have said or indicated Terry was in the car and wanted to talk to him. Tim did not see Melissa there, but in hindsight, he's pretty sure she was because Steve closed the door behind him pretty much as soon as he saw it was Tim at the door and then walked him away from the trailer as they talked. Steve went to the car and leaned in the window to talk to Terry. Tim tried to stand away a bit to give them some privacy, but he didn't hear any yelling or anything like that. And again, this is backed up by the neighbor who had her windows open that night. She didn't hear a yelling match at 11.30 either. After they talked, Steve walked away and went back into the trailer. When Tim got into the car, he could tell Terry was fuming 
mad. She still wasn't yelling or anything like that. It was a quiet rage. Whatever Terry had tried to talk to Steve about, whether it was money or the apartment, he essentially blew her off, and she was hurt and she was angry. Tim said he drove them back to Newton, and according to Rhonda, they arrived around midnight. So they were gone less than an hour, and about half that time was spent driving. Tim then went to work at Family Foods, where he was doing wiring work as an electrician while the store was closed overnight. He was there until 4 or 5 in the morning. According to Terry and her sister-in-law, Carol, who she lived with, they stayed up talking until 2 a.m. Carol said Terry seemed okay, except that she did have an outbreak of hives while they were sitting there talking. Stress can trigger hives, and Terry was possibly stressed over this whole situation. The next day, when Tim and Terry heard about the murders, Tim remembered insisting they go to the police. Terry didn't want to, but Tim convinced her they had to admit they were there that night because if it came out later, if someone had seen them, seen the car, they would look incredibly guilty for having withheld that information. Terry eventually agreed, and then they told the police that they were there and everything they had seen and what transpired. And if we're being honest here, Terry would have been on the suspect list even if she hadn't been there that night. She was the angry, estranged wife. She was on the list. Over the years, the area was split on their theories. Some believed it was Terry. A lot of people said she didn't seem upset at all about what happened to Steve. One friend said the day the bodies were found, Terry called to ask about a Girl Scout cookie order she had placed. The friend was surprised and couldn't really contain it and said to Terry, you know, your Girl Scout order doesn't really matter here. Your husband, the father of your children, was just brutally murdered. But Terry wanted to know when her Girl Scout cookies were coming in. Other people had similar stories where they just didn't feel like Terry's response was what it would be for someone who was sad Stephen was dead. But a lot of people in town also thought this was somehow connected to Hal, the ranch, and the drug business. People didn't trust Hal. He had a reputation for being somewhat shady. And the town was divided. I can't find any indication that people thought Melissa would have been the prime target. For one, Melissa had a reputation for being universally loved. I mean, not by Terry, but by everyone else. Whereas Stephen was known for being a bit of a troublemaker, having legal run-ins, and of course, this drug connection with Hal. Also, who would have known Melissa was there that night? She didn't initially intend to be there since she was wanting to take her mom's car so she could go back home later. So it definitely was seeming like Stephen was the target and who had a motive. People were looking at Terry and people were looking at Hal. 
when Cold Justice came in, they interviewed friends and family of the victims and of Hal and of Terry. And then they interviewed Hal, Tim, and Terry. In this interview, Hal's story changed a little bit, like he didn't remember sending Steve on that drug run to Florida. He actually was pretty insistent he wouldn't have done that. But we are talking over 30 years later. He seemed pretty eager to clear his name, and he seemed pretty willing to talk, even if 30 years had not helped his memory any. Now, Tim's interview is the one that surprised me. He came across as an open book. He seemed not nervous. He seemed like he wasn't hiding anything. He was just answering questions. He was ready to tell whatever he knew. He even told the investigators that bit about Terry being really angry that night after talking to Steve. He didn't sound like he was trying to cover for her at all. They didn't even have to push him much to get him to say that he did wonder if Terry was guilty. He said that for the first 30 years, he didn't think Terry had anything to do with it. He was thinking he was out there that night with her, and he knew they left while Steve was alive and well. But then around the 30-year anniversary, the police had pulled him back in for an interview, and they laid out the case. That's when it hit him that Terry could have gone back out there later that night after he went to work. He wasn't saying that he thought she did it or that he knew she did it. At this point, he's just saying he's open now, after 30 years, to that being a possibility. The investigators then interviewed Terry. Mind you, she has not moved out of the area. She has spent the last 30 years living in the same area where people think she may have killed two people. In this interview, she did not, in my view, come across very well. She was very defensive, but I'm going to give her some leeway here because she had spent 30 years as the suspect in a brutal double murder. That would put anyone on the defensive when the police come knocking again. But her story didn't match what she had said before. Some of it can be faulty memory after three decades. Like, she remembered that she was the one who went to the trailer door that night, not Tim. That could be faulty memory, but the cold justice investigators also pointed out that she could be remembering this incorrectly because she did, in fact, go to the trailer twice that night. And the second time, when she wasn't with Tim, she went to the door. There were other things Terry was inconsistent on that seemed more to be deflections. Terry was now claiming that she was the one who wanted the divorce. She did not want to reconcile. Terry said Steve was the one who was refusing to allow the divorce papers to be filed. The implication here being that the motive of jealousy wouldn't apply because she didn't care that her husband was seeing someone else. 
since she's the one who wanted out of the marriage. Absolutely no one, not even her brother Tim, backs her up on this. Everyone who knew her, Steve, and or Melissa, knew that this was a contentious situation, and Terry wanted to save her marriage. She was not walking away. When Terry was confronted on cold justice about these discrepancies, she claimed her previous statements had been altered by the police. And that's a really bold accusation. It sounds to me like another deflection. Towards the end of the cold justice episode, the investigators told the sheriff's department that the evidence pointed to Terry. The county prosecutor determined that there was enough evidence here to take it to trial. On March 3, 2014, exactly 31 years to the day after the murders, a press release was issued announcing the arrest of 53-year-old Terry Sapino on two counts of first-degree murder. She was held on a $400,000 bond, which she couldn't pay. Cold Justice then aired the episode on Stephen Fisher and Melissa Gregory on March 21st, not even three weeks later. It ended with footage of Terry's arrest. In part due to this massive press coverage, the trial was moved to another county in the hopes of finding an unbiased jury. The trial began 11 months after Terry's arrest in February 2015. In his opening statement, the prosecutor Scott Nicholson said the pieces would create a puzzle that showed Terry was the murderer. What he didn't exactly spell out was that all of the puzzle pieces were circumstantial, completely circumstantial. There were no witnesses who saw Terry at the ranch. She did give a statement that puts her at the scene the night of the murder, but none of the forensic evidence puts her there at the time of the murders. None of her blood or DNA was found at the scene. None of Melissa or Steve's blood was found on the clothes the police seized from her and tested. The only DNA of Steve's that was found on her pants was determined to be semen, not blood, only confirming what other people had said that the two were still having a relationship. The prosecution called some witnesses who claimed Terry made sort of confessions to them. Some were vague enough to not mean much. There was one that was more specific. A former coworker said that Terry claimed she and her brother had killed someone together, but Terry supposedly said this in 2001. The coworker didn't immediately go to the police, so she may not have believed Terry, and there may be some question around the statement. The state also had an expert testify that some of the blows were made with the killer holding the weapon in their left hand, so the murderer was either left-handed or they were ambidextrous, and Terry Sapino was ambidextrous. But her defense called a different expert who said there was no way to tell the handedness of the attacker 
from the evidence. So these experts sort of canceled each other out. The most damning piece of evidence the state had was a tape-recorded conversation that Terry had with her brother, Tim. She called him after her arrest from the jail. And of course, jail phone calls are recorded. They say so at the start of the call. So she and Tim had to have known they were being recorded. In this recording, which was played for the jury, Terry said, quote, I killed Steve Fisher. I didn't kill anyone else, end quote. That sounds like not only a confession, but an indication someone else helped her. She killed Steve and the other person killed Melissa. With this statement out there, I don't think Terry had much of a choice but to testify in her own defense to explain it away. Not just this recording, but also the confessions of sorts that others had testified to. With the incriminating statements she made to other people, Terry said they either didn't happen or they were taken out of context. So another example is that Steve's sister Darlene testified that she made a comment to Terry that at least Stephen died while being with someone he loved. She said Terry gave her a dirty look, which I completely believe she did. Stephen was Terry's husband, and guilty or innocent, that comment about him being with someone he loved when he died, that would have cut deep. Terry then retorted, he got what he got for what he was doing. Now that statement's a lot more incriminating than shooting a dirty look. Darlene interpreted it as Terry saying that Steve was killed because he was having this affair. But Terry testified that that is not at all what she meant. She said she was referring to his involvement in drug running since she believed that was what was behind the murders. As for the smoking gun recorded phone call, Terry testified that it was taken out of context. When I read this, I know I was wondering what context, quote, I killed Steve Fisher, would not be a confession. It was a bit like the Jinx and Robert Durst's Hot Mike. Great series if you haven't seen it. Anyway, Terry testified that the missing context here wasn't necessarily in the broader conversation, but it was in the piece of paper she was looking at while she was on the phone with Tim. They were talking about the charges, and she had the criminal complaint in front of her. It was multiple pages, and she hadn't read through all of them. She expected to see both charges on the top page, but it only listed the charge related to Steve's murder. So she was saying that, according to the charges, she killed Steve Fisher but didn't kill anyone else. She was expressing confusion over the paperwork. It wasn't until later when she made it through the stack of papers that she saw 
the second criminal complaint for the murder of Melissa Gregory. And yes, this is accurate. Steve Fisher's criminal complaint was on one sheet and Melissa's was on another. Terry was not the only witness in her defense. She had alibi witnesses testifying. This includes Tim's girlfriend, Rhonda, who by this point, nearly 32 years later, was actually his ex-wife. Rhonda testified that Tim and Terry were gone under an hour, neither came back covered in blood, her car hadn't been cleaned out, and there were no blood stains in it. With being gone such a short amount of time, they couldn't have committed a double murder, washed up, disposed of evidence, and walked in like nothing happened. Should the jury believe Rhonda and her timeline, this means Terry could not have killed the couple when she was at the ranch with Tim, but that still leaves her the rest of the night. So Terry's other sister-in-law, the one she lived with, Carol, testified about them staying up until 2 a.m. talking, which now is giving Terry an even narrower window to which she could have committed the murders, cleaned up, and then been awake in the morning for her little kids like nothing happened. I know I said earlier it's hard to have an alibi from 10.30 at night until 8 in the morning, but Terry ended up having one for more of that time than most of us would. Terry's attorney also scored some points about her size at the time. While Cold Justice theorized that someone short had committed the murders and Terry was about 5'2", Terry was also very small. She only weighed 90 pounds at the time. So even if she could fit that small area between the bench and the cabinets, she would have had to overpower two people, including a grown man who worked on a ranch, and then inflict these very serious wounds, the defense attorney was saying, it doesn't seem likely with how small she was. When her attorney was cross-examining a prosecution witness about the fight Melissa and Terry got into in the bar, she made sure to specifically ask who had the upper hand in that fight. And it was Melissa the entire time. We know Terry could have had help, maybe not Tim, but someone else. But that was not part of the case the state was presenting. Something else one of Terry's attorneys pointed out that I think we need to remember here is how young they all were. Steve was about to turn 21, Terry was 22. Melissa had just turned 17 two months before the murders. Their love triangle was full of drama and heightened emotions because they were young, they were immature, and they were not making the most rational choices. The point I think the attorney was trying to make was to remember that all this drama doesn't mean that Terry was homicidal. She was just young and immature. But it hit me a different way when I read about it. And the point I want to make is that part of the tragedy here is that Melissa and Steve 
never had the chance to outgrow this phase of their life. Melissa never got the chance to finish growing up or to make her way in the world with or without Steve. When we sit in our 30s and 40s and 50s joking about our misspent youth, we can only look back at it and laugh because we grew out of it. Melissa and Steve are forever stuck in that phase. So when we present their case and things about Steve being a troublemaker come up or Melissa sleeping with a married man, that can leave these judgments on them that wouldn't be there in 10 years if they had the chance to grow up. Steve never had the chance to mature, to realize running drugs for Hal was not where he wanted to be, to realize that running around with these women wasn't getting him where he wanted to be in life. They just were not given that chance. But Terry, she got her chance. And from the standpoint of the prosecutor and the families of the victims, she's the one who took that chance, that life, away from Steve and Melissa. There was another statement during the defense's close that hit me, and it was, quote, We're here because a cable entertainment show needed a good ending. And that is a good question for us to be asking. Why did this arrest happen when it did? The fact of the matter is they had no evidence in 2014 that they didn't have 10, 15, 20, 25 years before. Cold Justice did not find forensic evidence they didn't find a secret witness. They had the same case the sheriff had to work with, with the same list of suspects this entire time. They analyzed that evidence. They did a good job with it. Whether Terry did this or not, she deserved a place on the suspect list. She was there for a good reason. But what made this case worthy of trial now? According to the defense, It was because a cold justice episode needed a satisfying ending. And that was it. It was not because the state had enough evidence to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Terry committed these murders. The jury took the case, deliberated for six and a half hours before finding Terry Sapino not guilty on both charges. Terry started crying, she hugged her son, and she told the media she was planning to sue for malicious prosecution. The sheriff's department announced that they would follow up on any tips that came in, but they considered the case closed. They had no intention to completely reinvestigate the case. I can't say I disagree with this decision, They had reinvestigated the case already, multiple times. This was the case they had, and they turned over all the stones they could find. I get frustrated when it's a two-year-old case that the state won't reinvestigate after a not guilty verdict. Some people are found not guilty because they're actually not guilty. And the state is just letting the real killer get away. But with a case that is over 30 years old, 
and has received the attention this one did, I can see putting it aside and focusing on current cases or focusing on other cold cases. A few years before Terry's arrest, there was a nationwide Rand Corp study that showed only one in 20 cold case investigations make it to an arrest and only one in 100 get a conviction. Those aren't really great odds that they would get enough evidence for a second arrest and then a conviction, and the public is better served by them focusing on a case, a cold case, that has a better chance of being solved. We also have to remember that some people who are found not guilty are actually guilty. Sometimes there just isn't the evidence And I'll admit here that I don't know if Terry Sapino is innocent. She says she is. A jury decided there's not enough evidence to convict. I don't see the evidence, the proof I would want to say she absolutely did it. But I do think she, like I said, deserves a place on the suspect list. As for Terry's threat to sue, she went through with it. She didn't sue cold justice, but she did file against the prosecutor and the sheriff, but the suit was dismissed months later. It's incredibly difficult to sue prosecutors and investigators. They have qualified immunity. Outside of gross incompetence or violations of the law, public officials are shielded from liability if they performed their duties responsibly. They're allowed to get it wrong. They don't have to be perfect. And the bar set to prove that they were incompetent or violated the law is very, very high. Otherwise, we would see prosecutors being sued personally every time an appeal was successful for something like a Brady violation. We don't see that because... Suing investigators, suing the prosecutor, it's incredibly difficult to be successful at. But Terry Sapino wasn't the only person profiled on cold justice to file a lawsuit. In 2014, Joshua Singletary sued for defamation when the show looked into the murder of Lydia Gutierrez, who was suffocated and stabbed in August 2010. Joshua had been a prime suspect from the start. He was arrested the day of the murder and charged. But the charges were dropped due to insufficient evidence. According to his legal filing, the TV show portrayed him in a bad light and caused damage to his reputation by claiming he was a suspect in the murder, even though the case was dismissed. Joshua said he worked doing boat maintenance and he saw a drop in clients after the show aired and he was seeking damages due to defamation. Then in 2015, Stephen Nofsinger claimed he faced malicious prosecution after cold justice determined he was the prime suspect in the 1981 murder of his ex-wife. In his filing, He said cold justice told the police that the show would not air unless there was an indictment, and that is what led to his arrest. 
the show had episodes that did not end in being solved or end in an arrest. So I know for a fact that that's not a regular requirement. They don't go out and spend all that time and money shooting an episode and then just toss the footage because they don't have an arrest to air at the end. So I would want to see some proof of this claim that the producer said that. An interesting factor in the Stephen Nofsinger case is that the evidence in this case had been destroyed. So the cold justice team had even less evidence in 2015 than the police had in 1981. So if the case wasn't good enough with all the evidence available in the 80s, how could it possibly be enough at trial in 2015 when they had missing and lost evidence? And it turns out it was not enough. There was a five-day trial that ended in an acquittal. It's hard to say where these two cases are since civil cases rarely get press updates unless they're very high profile. All I found was that Stephen's case was dismissed at one point, but dismissed in such a way that he could refile. So for all I know, these cases are still winding their way through the courts. But this brings up the question we have to explore, the conflict between the First and Sixth Amendments in the U.S. The Iowa Law Review published an excellent piece on this in 2017, and I'll link it in the show notes. But the basic question is, when does the freedom of the press interfere with our right to have a fair trial? And what can we do about it when two constitutional rights appear to be in complete opposition? That little disclaimer at the top of these reality true crime shows that say everyone is innocent until proven guilty, do we really understand that? I don't mean can we rote recite it because we all can, but do we fully leave our minds open at the end of these episodes to the idea of innocent until proven guilty? We have trusted investigators laying out a persuasive case, but it's not court. The rules of evidence have not been applied in these cases. We're hearing things a jury would never get to hear. Is that preventing people from having a fair trial? I talk with podcasters all over the world who cover cases in their countries. We have True Crime Finland. We have True Crime Sweden. We have Canadian True Crime. I recommend all three of those. True Crime Sweden and True Crime Finland are in English, so definitely don't worry about checking those out and not being able to understand. They are great, and you're going to hear cases you've probably not heard before because they will use the original language reporting and police reports and translate it for us. It's fantastic. So again, go listen to those. But the point is that I talk to these podcasters, and the U.S. is unique in how much information is released to the press prior to trial. Other countries have swung their balance between freedom of the press and the right to a fair trial more heavily in the favor of a fair trial than we have here in the U.S. 
here, we have attorneys fighting judges on gag orders, not just the media fighting them. The attorneys will fight them because they know the power of the press and they want to be able to present information to the media. I think this question of balancing a fair trial against freedom of the press is largely an American problem because other countries seem to have solved it. They've seemed to have settled the question. I'm not saying they're right and the United States is wrong or the other way around. I'm just saying it's a question here in the U.S. we are still asking ourselves regularly. And since I'm posing the question, I do want to hear what you think. We will be discussing this case, this issue, other issues surrounding the murders of Stephen Fisher and Melissa Gregory on my live stream this Thursday, 8 Eastern, 7 Central on Get Vocal. You can watch it on Get Vocal or on Facebook Live by going to the Crime Lines page. Each week, I select two or three listeners or fellow podcasters to join me on a panel discussion about the recent episodes, and we take your questions and comments from the chat room. The link to the live show will be in the show notes, and I hope you join us in making this podcast a little more interactive. Thank you for listening to Crimelines. You can follow me on Facebook by searching Crimelines Podcast, Twitter at Crimelines Pod, and Instagram at Crimelines True Crime. Feel free to follow my personal Instagram at Charlie in KC. You can also find the show on Patreon and Himalaya Plus, where I post early and ad-free episodes, as well as a monthly bonus episode. Crimelines is produced by Basement Fort Productions, LLC. Visit our website, basementfort.com, for more information, including the sources for each episode. And while you're at it, go listen to Rusty Hinges, a comedic, mystery, true crime, and history show hosted by the one and only Lars and written by me, Charlie. 